Hello everybody and welcome to the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. In the early 2000s, when I went back to college, I read a book by Thomas Friedman. It was called The Earth is Flat. And I read his sequel to the book, The Earth is Hot, Flat, and Crowded. The thing about the books at the time was he wasn't saying that the actual world was flat. What he was saying was that technology and the connectedness of the planet and jet travel and etc. were going to make us smaller and ideally more community-based as a whole. I don't think it did that as much as it opened up a global competition for jobs, the likes of which we've never seen before or since. This person that I've spoken to on this show is one such person. I recorded this show nearly a month ago, roughly at the beginning of the Ukraine-Russia war. I think it was becoming apparent to me, at the very least, that this war would be a war fought on the propaganda front on TikTok and Twitter and other websites, not just in the you know, standard media such as cable news or broadcast television or newspapers or what what have you. I certainly didn't know nearly a month ago how the war would go or how badly it would go for Russia. Um, but and I, I don't think I knew... I'm sure I didn't know how this would change how the world thinks about warfare, that warfare is as much economic as it is militaristic now. I think that's a that's a very thick limb I can stand on these these days. Anyway, so that is added to the milieu of this of this episode. Um, I have my own personal nuanced view of China. I should say uh, this this man will get into that a little bit, but I I have my own nuanced view of China, which you know isn't quite what I thought it was. Uh, a month ago, and it isn't what I thought it was for sure on the day before I started my podcast. Um, as I've often said on the show, off air and on, no one learns more from this podcast than me. And I will say that due to my own interest in China, 
I have uh, my my view of China from two years ago has become quite uh, more nuanced and idiosyncratic, I would say. But I would also say that this episode I do not think is the episode where I will get into what my view of China is. All I'll say is that our society, by which I mean Western society as a whole, and you know, I don't know, is Australian Western? That's that's a question I have. But I'll say the first world, or however you want to say it, is going to have to have a position in China, or I should say on China, which is going to have to fold in the fact that whether we want to have this conversation or not, our economies are are inexorably linked. Um, and we're just going to have to deal with that. One does wonder if if world peace will come about, not because of anything other than the sheer practicality of the fact that you can't really go to war with a country that supplies you your electronics in the 21st century. That's That's not exactly the the smartest and best idea. With that said, thank you for listening to this podcast, and um, I'll talk to you guys later. Hi, everybody. I'm here with um, Nathan. Nathan, tell me your last name. Hi, I'm Nathan Bennett. And you, among other things, were a journalist in China, and you worked for China. Do I have that right? Yeah, calling me a journalist is stretching it very generously, but I did work in Chinese media. Okay, all right. I've wanted to talk to somebody like you for quite a while. Um, can you tell tell us first of all uh, what it's like to be a journalist in, or to work in the media in China? Well, let me uh, give you the story of how I got into it. Uh, I went to China to teach English. Uh, I taught for an NGO training Chinese English teachers. That was just kind of a, like like somebody who actually knew something about teaching hired native speakers to help Chinese teachers of English to practice their English so then they could reduce their dependency on native speakers, you know, shipping them over as teachers. But then I also taught in a... uh, you know, kind of after school, after work thing for Chinese professionals or university students for one year and then at a Chinese university for two years. And this was all part of my evil master plan to get out of teaching English. Um, so I got a job. I, I mean, like if I did nothing else, uh, I would be checking the, uh, like I'd be proofreading the translations done by Chinese nationals. Um, and then sometimes they would have me write an article or do a voiceover or like they even sent me on a handful of trips to different places in China to write an article about whatever they were focusing on that month. You have a very, um, your voice, it, it's very, it's the prototypical male uh, North American English speaker's voice. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, you know, the, the funny thing about that is that I, 
and for a while, I people would actually think I had an accent. Like, are you, are you from this country, that country? No, I'm not. <laughs> I can tell you're from the Midwest. Uh, no, actually, I'm a native Californian. Oh, well, maybe that's okay. All right. Wow. <laughs> All right. Okay, so China teaching English to English people who are going to teach English to... You're teaching English to Chinese who are going to teach English to other Chinese. Okay. Um, all right. Do you want to tell us where that was in China or, or not? Yeah, I've, I've spent, uh, like, like I've traveled all over China, but most of, like, my seven years living in China was Beijing. I was okay. there for a year, went somewhere else for a year, came back for a year, went back to America for two years, back to Beijing for five years. Uh, so solidly Beijing. Okay. Okay. Um, what's Beijing like as a, as a place? Like as a city? Um, aside from being an all-consuming, colossal enormity, um, it is like... Okay, like some parts of it have real character. I mean, like it, it's a place where different layers of history kind of collide. Um, you kind of go back, uh, like you'll see stuff that looks like it's 150 years old, but still lived in. And then you'll see stuff that like the, like anybody working on the side of the street might look like they were from the Chinese 1950s or 60s. But you like there are some areas of China where it's like all the fashion is uh, is the latest stuff. Um, riding the Beijing subway, if you if you get like a good, you know, like like you could profitably spend a whole day on a long trip just riding the Beijing subways, seeing the different kinds of people you see there. Hmm. So it's extremely modern. But also, uh, one thing to remember about Beijing is that as one of the places with the best academic and uh, economic opportunities, so many people from everywhere in China are attracted to that place. And I, I, I had a, a previous guest who said that actually getting permission to live there is a bit of a problem, or is that true or not? Um, you can be there, and you can presumably live there but uh, they have a system called, in Chinese, it's called the Huko system, where you are registered to a place, and in the place where you are registered, you get like access to education for children, uh, health care, um, it's easier to own property there. So, like, if you wanted to move from Beijing out to the countryside, like, that, there'd be no problem signing up for that huko. But if you wanted to get a Beijing huko, that would be, that, that's, like, like holy grail, golden ah. ticket kind of, you know. Aha. Uh -huh. So, it's, because uh, he, the way he described it, it was like, uh, I could see, like, a real structural problem, like. Yeah, one of the initiatives you know. that the Chinese government is actually working on, this is a huge thing. So like some of the things that mm -hmm. I saw when I was mm -hmm. working for Chinese media, of course, it's not going to be 
as good as they would like you to think, but it is something that they really are working on is creating more opportunities inland, out west, so that everybody isn't just attracted to the to the Chinese coast and the big cities. Uh, that there are more opportunities out there. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um. Okay. So before we get into the brass tacks of the Chinese media, can you? Just on a daily basis, could you tell you were in a communist... First of all, would you describe China as either authoritarian or communist, or both? I think authoritarian is pretty safe to say. Um, and when okay. you talk about the Communist Party of China being communist, like that's th- there's there's no nonsense about it. Like, yeah, their their official ideology is communism, and the reason why they adopted market economics is that it actually works to improve the lives of the people. So, okay. Like one of the, like one thing about Marxism itself is that it's actually very, very, you can mod it in video game terminology. Um, it's, it's very, very adaptable, partly because, um, Marx himself was not a, you know, like he didn't have the final revelation of you know God's word to mankind, um, like so you you see Mark like Mark like Lenin adapted Marx, Mao adapted uh, Marx and Lenin for China, and then they're still adapting it. But then also China is like kind of their superpower is the ability to syncretize that they can mix things as they need to and make it work. Okay, can you can you give me an example, like a, a, a sort of a lived example in your own daily life, or not? Uh, my goodness, let's see. Um, well, like I I had Chinese friends when I was in college, and then I actually visited uh, one friend's family uh, in um, in Beijing. And uh-huh. this person talked about uh, the the family, uh, like like the 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 family had like, like Buddhist idols there, but they, they didn't really believe in, uh, like 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 they weren't religiously Buddhist, but they would kind of you know do do a little bit in that direction just in case. Um, that's that's how a lot of people approach religion, probably all over the world, but. There's a way, at least from my perspective, it seems that in China it's made a national characteristic. Like I, um, one of the things for Chinese media, okay, we were sent to Shanxi province, which is in central China, and we were sent to a place where it was the hometown of a legendary hero named Guan Yu. And one of my colleagues, a member of the Communist Party of China, said something about maybe going to a temple for Guan Yu who is worshipped as a god to pray for good luck in writing the article. So that there's no contradiction between, you know, like between that and actually being a good member of the Communist Party. Okay, so even though uh, Marx himself, I believe... Actually, he did. He said, uh, 
religion is the opiate of the masses. Yeah. Uh-huh. So even though Marx said that, this Chinese Communist Party member was telling you to go to the temple to pray to the gods so you could have a good article. Interesting. Um, okay. So when you're working for the Chinese media, is there a minder or somebody like that? Or how does that work? Um, as far as I know, um, like th th there might be somebody somewhere who checks up from time to time. I have known people who have lived and worked in China who have been invited to talk to the police or something, but there's nobody really looking over your shoulder. Um, there are certain things that basically so like my function in where I worked. Okay. Like, so I am by no means an expert. So, but like where I worked, I was kind of like a specialty part, like screwed on to the end of a, uh, very well-functioning machine. The, um, I met a guy who uh, worked on another language, and so he was my roommate on a trip to Shanghai. Um, and he talked about working there for like a few years before they really let him start working on things. Um, like, like this is just particular to where like my position about 75% of the time, they didn't give me anything to do. That's by no means a characteristic experience, but they just, like, so it's not so much that anybody was watching me, they just didn't give me the driver's seat. Like, so there was, there was somebody checking, but it wasn't like some sort of official surveillance. It's that the people who, who had the fingers on the send button or the publish button um, the, the, the people who were like, there was always somebody, a member of the communist party. And if, when you're in working in Chinese media, like most of your colleagues are members of the communist party there, there's always like, so you, you can't really slip something in. Okay. You said something maybe in passing that I want to drill down on just a second. Sure. Um, maybe for three nanoseconds. So let, let, let me just give you an example. At the end of this conversation, depending on, depending on the hour, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to put this in audacity. I'm going to make it stereo. I'm going to change the format, put some metadata on it. And take it to my podcatcher. And then I'm going to push a publish button. At some point, I'm going to push a publish button. Are you saying, like, somebody else pushed the publish button and you didn't? Or, or what? Like, you didn't have control of the publish button, basically? Yeah, like, so they would give me, say, Facebook posts and Instagram. No, in they started doing an Instagram thing. I would do okay, Facebook, Twitter, and then sometimes Instagram. They would give me the English text to proofread, but it was not like they weren't using my account. Uh, I didn't own the page. You know, I, I can tell you the name of the person who, if they're still the one doing it, is running this one particular page. I'm 
I, I'm hiding it not because it's impossible to find out where I worked, but it's more like out of respect for them personally that I'm just like not pointing them out as, ah, you propagandists. Um, I, I, so when, I have when, you, a, when yeah. you say the media, was this... Was this disinformation media targeted to the West, or was it Chinese media for Chinese consumption? Um, well, given that I was working in English, like, I don't really speak Chinese. I I did take a class, and I unforgot a lot of it, as I would take lessons from time to time, and I would even learn new things sometimes. Uh, but I was like, so th this is media targeted to. English-speaking audiences. Oh. Um, we also ran a... Uh, there was a publication about uh, interactions between China and India, and of course, because India has English as a major academic and official language, you would target that to India. But like Pakistan is a country close to China uh, for a lot of reasons, so like English language media would be appreciated in Pakistan, also say in English speaking Africa, um, and then anybody in uh, you know Canada or North America or Europe who would want to read it. Um, so like like the so it's about pushing China's view of things, also you know pushing you know like like uh, material for people who like Chinese culture. Um, so it's, ah. it, yeah. So on the one side, it, any, every country should tell its own story. Okay. Like you can't just wait for the Sinology department at whatever American university to do it for you. You have to do it for yourself. Um, but then also, yeah, that there, there were, there was a propaganda side to it. Okay, sure. Um, I now see why you don't want to tell me where you worked. Oh, uh, okay. It's Good. it's not so much about hiding because I'm not there anymore and I don't really have any secrets to spill, but <laughs> um it's just it's more out of respect for the people that I worked with. Like I'm not pointing a finger at them. I get it. I get okay. it. Yeah. I know I, I I get it. I understand. Yeah. Um Okay. What would you say um, a major, what is China's interest, as far as you can tell, uh, with America, with the United States? Um, for, for one thing, um, I've understood China to be a very China-heavy thing. Like, they're very focused on their own agenda, their own rise, their own, you know, construction plans. So like they've, part of how they have done so well since 1980 is that they adapted to the international system. Um, this, what I'm, some of what I'm about to tell you comes from like listening to a ton of podcasts about about Chinese current affairs, also history, um, they're like they built something called the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, and that follows things like the World Bank. They're they're fitting into the world system. Like if you hear about the Belt and Road, 
it's about keeping the Chinese economy going, not about uh, putting the rest of the world into debt slavery. Um, okay. Versus America, like they're trying to shore up their own national security, um, but they they don't always operate. They, they don't operate on the same you know, like operating system, so to speak, as you know, the American system, the uh, Euro-American world order kind of thing. Oh, okay. So you're saying it's a, it's a, essentially a different world order. It's more, obviously more uh, China-centric, so to say. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Like, like so, uh, mm-hmm. Like basically, um, Europe and uh, Canada and the U.S. and maybe Australia and New Zealand and some other places—they uh, like to think of themselves as small L liberal governments, and China doesn't like to think of itself that way at all. Uh, would that be a way to say it? I th- I think so. Okay. Okay, yeah. So they see communism as a way to guarantee outcomes for people. Is that it? Or is it more authoritarian, would you say? Well, if you look at the history of Chinese politics, I mean, even like even the nationalists and uh, Chiang Kai-shek, like, they weren't anywhere near establishing like a real democracy where like Chiang Kai-shek might have believed in it, it wasn't something he was ready to turn around and do uh, straight okay. off. Okay. Um, so the the Communist Party of China, they like the partly there. There's a lot of stuff from previous history of Chinese nationalism and different revolutions that is inherited actually by the Communist Party, whether they inv- whether they you know, invented it or not, um, they, like, they call themselves in one way or another democratic. They say that they represent the needs of the people, uh, but there's, there's a Leninist understanding to that where you have this revolutionary vanguard that we're representing your interests or what your interests ought to be anyway. And authoritarian is just kind of a, is just a description of, you know, the government commands the thing and it is done. Okay. Um, could you, it's been a while since I've taken, uh, a government theory class. Um, and I don't think I had to spend too much time learning about Lenin, learning about, uh, Leninism or Stalinism. Could you, in your own words, tell us what Leninism is? Uh, yeah, um, part of the, like, so I'm going to give credit here to a lot of my understanding to the Revolutions podcast by Mike Duncan. Okay. So if you just look up Revolutions podcast, um, it's a pretty well-known podcast. Um, I fanboy season three all the time. I love the French Revolution, but go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Excellent. Um, I, uh, 
so it was like Marxism came out of like a mix of socialist and anarchist movements. So Marx is just kind of like the Coca-Cola that emerged from a variety of cola sodas. Mm-hmm. It's a you know really well-known brand then. So Lenin, uh, how he worked out how revolution needed to be executed was that you needed to have this revolutionary vanguard of professional revolutionaries who were pushing things ahead. So that... Like like the uh, the Guomindang, the nationalists of China, were a Leninist party with a revolutionary vanguard elite. Um, something like Stalinism is uh, something like socialism in one country. So instead of Trotsky's worldwide revolution, keep pushing revolution all over the all over the world. Uh, Stalin pushed for developing it in one place first and then gradually exporting it. Like, so the Soviet Union supporting wrote like uh, different movements in Africa, they were trying to push communist revolution all over the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Stalinism focused on developing it in one country first. Also the uh, formalization of state terror as a policy. Whereas um, the Communist Party of China, um, they Mao kind of had a Mao had a divergence from Stalin, um, and so they they took Leninism, but uh, I forget where they like one of the real things you see at the core of Chinese communism is Chinese nationalism. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the anchor points that keeps them right where they are is the needs of the nation of China. So where they have a divergence, say from the Soviets in history, it's that like Chinese ne- needs and aims were not being covered. Mm-hmm. All right, let's let me now that I understand who I have virtually in front of me. Okay, let me get a little more into your, uh, maybe, career, if that's even the right word for it. Um, uh, yeah, I have had a, a, a careering... Uh, yeah. Yeah, anyway, Hold on. it's been a wild drive. Yeah, I bet. Let me ask you a question that just... Okay, so there's lots of people who speak who teach English in China. Okay. How did you go from being an English teacher to, as you put it, helping to forward Chinese aims to an English-speaking audience? Well, it's actually very simple. Okay. I went back to teaching English because... Okay, so I was in America for two years, kind of hoping to make that work out, and it wasn't. So I went back to teaching English in China because I could start working immediately and I didn't need to own a car. And through a, you know, so a conservative step out of teaching English was to work for Chinese media, where they somewhere would need an English language proofreader 
and so all the people who could speak Chinese and English really, really well were working for places that could pay two or three times as much. So the competition was low enough and my abilities were high enough to get taken on. So for me, it was just a job. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, hmm. That's, that's interesting. Um, everybody says that, but that's interesting. Um, tell me about, uh, so how long were you in China? How long were you in Beijing? Seven years in total. Okay. Okay. Would you be willing to tell me when you started? Ooh, let me see. Okay. Okay, so, so like summer 2010 to summer 2011 was my first year. Then pretty much 2013 to first month or two of 2014 was my second year. And then 2016 to early 2021 was my five-year block. So I was in... I was in Chinese media for the first 13 months of the pandemic. Oh, how was that, by the way? Um, my goodness. Well, like, like on the one side, okay, it was, it was like, I actually renewed my contract during the time of the pandemic. So it's like, okay, the Chinese government is not really going to stop buying Chinese media. So, this is probably a fairly stable place to be right now, so I'm just going to hang on right here. So that that was one side you know, in terms of personal economics. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, like like there's one side was okay. You know, it's it's encouraging to see in the media. It's like yeah, okay, we're hanging together. We're going to do this. We're going to beat this. It's like okay, you know, it's nice to see that kind of coherent message. But then on the other side, it's uh, it's like, can we like like talk about where something might not have worked? Can can we talk about some of the negative side of things? Um, in, in, yeah. in America, that happens all the time. In China, not so much. I would imagine. Yeah, my this is a conclusion I came to after like trying to write an article about it, like just for not like, you know, after I've left China, is that the Chinese media needs to say that the that the Communist Party, you know, is doing the right thing, whereas like American and other Western media needs to say that the media is doing the right thing. Like so the Chinese media can't say that the Communist Party screwed up. American media can't say American media screwed up. How do you think, I don't know what the, what the analogy is, but it strikes me that talking to you for 29 minutes and 46 seconds, 48 seconds, it strikes me that you legitimately have one foot in both worlds. So who do you think? How did the American media screw up, first of all? 
My goodness. I, I mean, like, like part of it is where they get the money. Okay. Um, like, you know, like, okay, I, uh, I get, um, like, like if I read CNN online, if I read Fox News, if I read MSNBC, I, I'm not paying money for it. You, you do have the more highbrow stuff like the Atlantic, um, with it that might get more nuanced things like that um but i you know you you i i certainly don't pay for it and so that's going to come somehow and so whoever's paying for the advertising or whoever has something that they want you to believe in they're the ones paying for the media to do their jobs um but then, okay, if you have okay, advertisers, they need eyeballs, they need clicks. So whatever tends toward uh, sensation, whatever tends toward hooking people on, hooking people on reading more, that's what they put up. Mm. I, I read a book called All the, what is it? I think it's All the Truth is Out by Matt Bai, B-A-I, um, about the Democratic uh, campaign by Gary Hart, H-A-R-T, in the late 1980s. And um, he's quoted as having said, you know, okay, you, you can follow me around, so follow me around. And so the media did, and they found him having what may or may not have been an affair. I, I, I um, but like what wouldn't have, like, like just how it was handled and the new, the very new news cycle, it, it tore him up because nobody was used to that yet. Um, so possibly a good presidential candidate was torn apart by a new way of doing media, um, you know, whatever gets sensation, whatever gets attention. And then, of course, that means that advertisers get seen in between news segments. Okay. Um, so, so your analysis of the American, or I guess Western media, is that because it's being paid for by advertisers, it needs to do, to do their bidding, basically. There, there is a substantial. The, like I am, the farthest thing from an expert that I can't even see experts when I look over. Um. Mm -hmm. Just, just so that's clear. Like I don't have any media experience. Like part of how I was able to get this job is, I had to go to China. And it's government media and, you know, and, and other things. So like, that's, um, I, I wasn't even in one of the, the premier, you know, you know, uh, Chinese media outlets. Um, mm -hmm. so like, but, but advertising is a, is a big part of it also okay. because like media is theoretically independent and it's owned by private individuals who might happen to be billionaires, like if, 
somebody's pushing something like a if a billionaire has an agenda you don't know that like you have to do the analysis and then is the analysis just like fox news debunking mainstream media well but then fox news actually is mainstream media because they're but they're just owned by the other side of the billionaires like you know but it's really really hard to prove that whereas in china it's like everything is run by the communist party right right uh, right so so in china they're by definition and this is going to sound blindingly obvious, so brace yourself. But in China, there isn't a, uh, a voice of dissent, should we say? Yeah, there, there. I understand that there are some, um, like there's a handful of independent media things, but also it it really depends what you're looking at, where you're getting it. Like South China Morning Post mm -hmm. is Hong Kong based and it'll report like in Western fashion, whatever's going on in China. But at the same time, when you look at different Chinese media outlets, they have slightly different perspectives. They have slightly different emphases. So like anytime Xi Jinping would go somewhere, okay, that meant that my colleagues were like working to you know, record every glass of water he drank. Um, the, uh, but then at the same time, apparently something like the Global Times is maybe a little bit more hawkish, whereas what I was working for was a bit more highbrow, kind of the Chinese equivalent of National Geographic or Time magazine. Okay. All right. So, but as far as... Um, like if the Communist Party had had a disagreement in China, they yeah. wouldn't air that disagreement in the media, basically. Yeah, there there are um, one analogy that I've used for it is like see like in the American bipolar system. Okay, you know, you have polar bears and you have penguins. You can see okay, two kind of different things. Whereas in a in a unipolar system like the Chinese one, you only have the penguins. So then you have to look very carefully at the different kinds of penguins, which okay, even in the American system, like there are different kinds of Democrats, there are different kinds of Republicans, and then there there's, you know, depending on you know, then there's kind of like the establishment where it's kind of like they play at opposing each other, but they don't really oppose each other, or they they do, but mm. they, but it's not that bad. Well, it it really takes a lot more analysis uh, beyond what I'm even able to do. Um, like it's, I, I'm not a smart person. I listen to the smart people, kind of thing. Um, so like, it takes a lot of mm. studying the careers of different people or studying like, like different institutions have different, um, like, like a lot of it comes down to how, uh, how communist party officials make their power bases, um, where they have their relationships. So like, so like whoever, 
you're supporting, okay, they pull you up, but then you have the support of it. But then also whoever is, uh, you know, on top is trying to make sure that other uh, lower level officials aren't building independent power bases. Like one potential rival to Xi Jinping was a guy named Bo Xilai, who was the chief of a city called Chongqing, right in the center of China. Well, it seemed like he was building too much of a separate power base, and Bo Xilai is currently in jail for like corruption or something. Um, and so, like Xi Jinping, how he got to the top wasn't because he was some sort of power hungry, this, that, and the other thing. Um, it's that he was doing a lot of things for the sake of the communist party. And then like he knew the right person and was in the right place to be promoted for this thing. And it just so happens that he's, uh, you know, like organizing things around himself as the center of a new, you know, like, like 3.0, 4.0 version of Chinese communist uh, ideology. Mm -hmm. Okay. What would you say that ideology is? Um, like it, it's going to be like, like, so Mao started with Marxism, Leninism, but then the, like the, the official ideology of the communist party of China was Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, but then, uh, under Deng Xiaoping, who was the guy who I'm just going to say 1980 for a convenient bookmark in the history there. Um, oh, and I just want to put a disclaimer, like if this gets any of you listening to this interested in finding out what the actual facts are, okay, that's, you know, like, like there's, there's a lot that I might get wrong cause I am not an expert. Um, yeah. Um, but that's what I love about my podcast is I can yeah, talk yeah. to just average people. And, but so I'm just asking you, this person who's been to China, yeah, what, what you actually, like if I, if you were to stop me and say, what do you think? Um, I don't know. Like, what do you think Joe Biden's aims are for the country? Blah, blah. Right. Yeah. I'd tell you. I might yeah, so not be I'll, accurate, but I'd tell you. Yeah, so I, I can give you the rest of my answer. I just want to make sure that it's clear. Yeah, my my level of qualification. Okay, so yeah. Um, on about 1980, Deng Xiaoping pushed a a coherent vision to bring in market economics. So you know, people were able to get rich. Um, now the now the now, so through the '90s and the early and the 2000s, um, everything was about getting rich. Um, mm -hmm. But then under Xi Jinping, they're starting to balance in the opposite direction, making sure to spread the wealth around, trying to do something about uh, economic inequality, um, economic like if you like part of the base of legitimacy for the rule by the communist party is that normal people are able to improve their lives. It's that people are better off. Like some of the things I did when I was working for Chinese media, like I would see where, okay, people had gone from maybe $20 a month to $200 a month, which, okay, that's 
you know, not a lot of money to not a whole lot more money, but at their level, it's like a difference between eating only vegetables every day and now having some meat, which nutritionally is like a huge advantage, you know, having a paved road versus not like you could spend all day going to town and then you spend all the next day coming back. Well, no, now you can go to town twice in the same day. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Like, okay. like that. Yeah. Yeah. So the, so you would say, Basically, in your own words, you would say that uh, Xi Jinping, that President Xi's uh, of China, um, aims is to make the average Chinese person's life a little better. Basically, yeah. My like like another way to say it is, I believe that the Communist Party me- believes in a some variation on the ends justify the means. And so at the stage of their control of China, they're able to do a lot more in the way of direct development rather than shooting their opponents. Um, But it's still things like they make the news serve the party's control. They make um, like, like everything serves party control. Yeah. Like, I remember, I mean, for example, you know, I'm somebody that I watch a lot of YouTube. Yeah. And, like, lots of people. But I was watching this documentary from, I don't know where, but I don't know who put it out originally, but it was a documentary about this man in China who lived in this build. It was what they call nail houses, right? Am I saying it right? Um but it was like he was the only resident in the in the building left and they wanted to put it was like in the middle of a road or something literally they had built this road and the the house or the building was like in the middle of the road and they yeah. were waiting for him to vacate so they could finish building the road and like that was the official thing but unofficially like they were at night they would try to like force him to leave and stuff and and basically like all he wanted was like legal permission to live in the city essentially if i remember right mm-hmm. so it's you know like wow i mean watching that i just you know um made me glad to be an american <laughs> basically but i've just been fascinated by china for for years since before I knew what a podcast was, <laughs> I've just been oh, absolutely by China. Um, I'm I want to. You had mentioned something in the email about you you'd been to Eastern Europe. Um, yeah, I um, I had a relationship. Uh, okay, that drew me there and that relationship is over so i'm not there anymore um so um yeah i was in romania for eight months okay now correct me if i'm wrong how close to that is is that to the ukraine is that to ukraine a bordering okay okay now i was aware of 
I've been aware of Russia's aggression to its previous satellite states for quite a while, uh, many years. So, in fact, I remember uh, actually thinking that this was going to, this Ukraine situation was going to happen uh, before it did. Um, can you, living in Romania, could you sort of tell, like, oh, the Russians are going to do something or whatever, or not really? Or I I don't know. My former girlfriend didn't really like Russians um, for I don't know, one reason or another. Um, you know, so I, so I guess I can go back to liking Russians again. Um, I mean, just like, you know, culturally as people, um, I've had many wonderful Russian friends actually go to a Russian church um, well, Russian tradition anyway. Um, like p part of the thing is, uh, like that area of the world, it's, it's like when you have land powers versus sea powers, you're, you're always having to try to shore up your, your defenses. Like, so if you have a nice river right there, that's nice river, nice mountain range, that's a fairly good natural boundary. Like, so the, the boundary between say France and Spain doesn't move very much because there's the Pyrenees mountains right there. Whereas um, Eastern Europe, like there's a whole lot of open plains where you can just go right through. Um, Romania was mm. like part of why Romania has had a really hard time coalescing and being its own thing is they're right in the middle between. Well, there was the there were the the Turks, there was the Holy Roman Empire, there was the Russians. Mm. So, excuse me. So like whenever you'd have, you know, some guy, like there were like three or four principalities in the area that is now Romania. So if you have one guy who is the leader of one of these things, then one of his rivals can go to the Turks or the Holy Roman Empire, or the Austrians uh, or the Russians and say, I'll support you if you help me depose this guy I don't like. So you you always have the ability to, you know, have somebody turn against somebody and there's, you know, some bigger uh, patron ready to, ready to support some client. Mm -hmm. um, like part of why Russia is as big as it is today. There's a really, there's a great channel on YouTube called the Caspian Report. And they did a video about a year ago, I think, about mm -hmm. Russia's security, um, th like thing. Russia is kind of like a small country that got large. Um, Russia was continually raided by the Turks for slaves um, or uh, like uh, like the Mongols ruled China for... No, no. Russia. Russia. The Mongols ruled... Russia for years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until the uh, the the Tsar... Yeah. Uh, conquered lands far enough out that way that a lot of that stopped. Yeah. I know, for example, that the Ottoman uh, sultans would get a lot of their uh, harem slaves from over that way. Um, yeah. And there's some, I forget uh, where, where she's from, but it's like it's known like she harem harem was 
either from uh, Ukraine or from Russia. I forget which. Roxolana? Yeah, Ro- yeah, but also goes by Harim, apparently. Okay. Uh, she <clears throat> she was uh, from, I forget, Ukraine or Russia, but it's known, which is, it's actually known. Like she's from this village. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But. So. It's, Russia's, to me, that whole, I guess, all of Europe. See, I'm fascinated by history. So it's fascinating to me, it would be to live in a place that's that old. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Nothing in America is too old, at least when it comes to people of European stock. And, you know, African stock, too, I guess. Um, Tell me, um, when you were writing or when you were proofreading stuff for like social media did you get us so that it was literally was it news or was it was it news or was it just what was it you that you were proofreading a lot of it was news i mean some of it i actually wrote myself like this company had an exhibit at the china international import expo like like you know okay that's that's pretty straightforward that's Okay. Um, or like I did a few pieces on, I, like like we're, um, like like literally a few like three to five maybe, on this or that that I saw when I was sent to see something or other about development of some rural area, um, mm-hmm. like so it's you know so like a, like showing the story of how development changed somebody's life for the better Mm. Um, Mm. a lot of what we focused on was things like culture or um, development of this part of the economy Um, one article i remember proofreading was about um, turkic minorities in western china and how they could get jobs like working for the border guard I don't know how well that's going these days, given what's going on in Northwest China. Um, what? But, okay, when you mm-hmm. say that, what is going? I mean, tell my listeners, and also me, because I don't really know what's going on in Northwest China. Um, my apologies for all the uh, the you know caveats and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It is something like. So the, the Uyghur people are kind of the... Oh, yeah, the Uyghurs. Who you, okay, right. Yeah. That's where that is. Okay. Yeah. So um, oppressed minorities, uh, concentration camps, that kind of thing. Yeah. What I, what I understand yeah. is yeah. that this is actually like the latest version of what's kind of been going on for centuries in China. That in one way or another neighboring peoples who are close enough to being Chinese, um, they either like, like, like they, they assimilate in one way or another. And, um, the Chinese state would very, like 
I studied a lot about the Hmong people, HMLNG, uh, mm-hmm. when I was in college. And in China, they're known as the Miao, M-I-A-O, that their state was defeated and they would continually migrate uh, south and west. And then they eventually got down to Laos, Thailand, Vietnam, and many of them came over to America um, because they were on our side during the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Well, the 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 Han people, would, the Han Chinese, they would defeat surrounding peoples and keep pushing them or, or assimilating them in, you know, through a, just a lot of different things that were happening. Mm. Um, like the, the last imperial dynasty was the Qing dynasty. They were the Manchu, separate language, separate culture. Um, but they were spread all over China because they were the ruling, you know, dynasty, the ruling ethnicity. But then when the Han reasserted, like, like through the through Chinese nationalism, they reasserted their control. Like like so, the Ming Dynasty was Han, the the Yuan Dynasty was Mongol. Before that, I was it this Song. Anyway, they the the Yuan conquered a Han Dynasty. Um, mm-hmm. not the Han Dynasty, but anyway, um, yeah. they. So the, the Han are in control again. The, the majority nationality is in control again. And they kind of go back and forth between having really open policies for letting national minorities uh, develop their own culture, but also integrate with Chinese culture um, but the, and uh, making everybody integrate. So after some like actual terror attacks by people coming from Northwest China, then, then somehow or other, the Chinese government decided that's it, no more of this. And so they started like arresting loads and loads of people, putting them into camps, re-educating the hell out of them. Uh, uh, you know, re-education covers uh, like stuff that, my goodness, those are crimes against humanity. Um, mm-hmm. Like I... I don't know whether to call it genocide, but when you have to be asking that question, it's not, there's, there's nothing good to say about it. If you're legitimately asking if something is is genocide, it's, it's most likely something adjacent to that at the very least. Yeah. Um, okay. But like a lot of the things that are being done like yeah. variations on that have been done to Chinese women, like with forced sterilizations or forced abortions or uh, you know, like it's, it's all, you know, bits of the same thing. That's it's being, you know, just now it's happening in Northwest China in a different system, in a different mix in a different program, but it's, it's all bits and pieces of things that have come before. Okay, and the and the difference, I guess, is you're saying that that this is happening when our world is shrinking, and people like me living in the U.S. can just know about it. Yeah. Okay. All right. 
Okay. So let me ask, um, let me ask this. Um, what would you say? Would you say, uh, the U.S. has, should the U.S. be afraid of China or should the U.S. be worried about China or should we try to treat them like we would a pure superpower or what, how, how would we, how should we treat China? And again, I know you're not an expert, but you are somebody who is more expert in this than I am because you live there. Well, my, um, back when I had a terrible fear of kidnapping, uh, you know, based on the latest thing that was going on in the news when I was a kid. Well, my dad uh, gave me a very helpful uh, frame, vigilance, not fear. So, mm. you know, like, one of the reasons why things went very, very badly for the Americans in the beginning of the Korean War was some of our commanders were, like, were... Like they 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 called the uh, the Chinese soldiers like yeah they're just laundrymen. Like, like no, these are very very proficient war fighters who have defeated vastly superior, in terms of equipment anyway, forces. They're you know, like you know these are people reading Sun Tzu in the original. Um, like these are no dummies. Like like the human wave attack thing. No, they they had a they they had tactics. They had like the the American strategy to uh, win. You know, with scare quotes there. Um, the Korean War was to make it so bloody that everybody decides to call a draw. Like that's the only way they really really won. You know, land war in Asia not good. So when it comes to China, um, it's like th there's you know a healthy respect. Um, but also it's like, we have to know ourselves. It's like, what do we actually want to do? Like, like, so the idea of getting China integrated into the world, into the world system, like world trade organization, the UN, um, you know, active trade with America, it's to help them see our system and become more like us. Well, if we don't know what we are, or if we get lost in, like I think there are ways to re-express what we are that address historical problems, but that don't rip up the constitution and like like bring in something else, and you don't have the same level of genius in the same room that you had when the American system was was founded. It's like part of our core strength is we can self-correct without needing a bloody revolution. Um, it it might be hard, but it's better than if you destroy everything and have to reinvent the wheel that you just burned. So you're saying China doesn't have to, can't do that, or they can, or, or how, um, how are you, what's the parallel with China here? So like, like with, with China, um, like we have to know ourselves and we need to, like, so there's a way that we need to give them respect, but also like, like put our foot down if we have to. One of the things that, like one of the things about the, the Chinese system right now is everything leans on the legitimacy of the communist party. The, remember I was talking about 
the Communist Party is kind of like they, they believe that the end justify the means. The Communist Party is the means to the end of China being a strong, well-developed nation. Um, they they ride the American guaranteed system of security around the world. Like the, the American Navy is part of who is keeping the sea lanes clear. They're part of making sure that, you know, things like the Suez Canal and um, the Panama Canal and, you know, other seaways are safe for trade. So China's trying to build a parallel system so that its economy stands on its own feet. And so it doesn't have to rely on, you know, any, you know, any mm. American or other international system. Mm. Um, they're not like, they're not really in, like, I'm not sure to what to, like, I'm not sure how they would do in a war, like, like versus another major power, because like that historical point just hasn't been proven yet. Mm -hmm. um, so like, like one thing America can do is make sure that we have our own bases covered economically and not send all of our industry to China because it's like, you know, like, like during COVID it's like, okay, everything's made in China yeah. uh -huh, and everything's slowing down all over the world and stuff isn't getting sent out of China as easily. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a profound chip shortage, for example. Yeah. Uh, something I know about, yeah. uh, there, there's, a prof there's just, um, I forget the statistics right now, but there's an, um, the shocking amount of our food, for example, our food, for example, does uh, does time in China it's somewhere along the line between crop or animal to package thing that I go get or that yeah. somebody gets to delay you know, a shocking amount of our food comes from China shocking amount um and you know I I know a lot about mobile phones so I'm very hesitant, for example, to have a, a, a Chinese smartphone, for yeah. example. I'm very hesitant uh, for that um, because, you know, that, that data ends up in China, um, yeah. you know. But, uh, but at the same time, I, I really think their history is amazing and just the, the the level of sophistication their culture had early on. You know, the old adage of when my ancestors were in caves, you know, their ancestors were doing writing or whatever, you know, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just, I mean, you know, but I don't know. Um, so what do you appreciate about now that you've come back to America, what do you appreciate about America now that you've been in China? Uh, one thing is I really appreciate that our system can self-correct. Um, that like, you know, if one political party screws up, there's another one that has experience that's ready to take over. Whereas in the Chinese system, 
they've wiped out all possible alternatives. So unless you were going to have a phased transition away from the Communist Party, like, like that's a really, really hard transition to make because um, they've spent so long suppressing you know, alternative ideas to whatever the Communist Party is doing this time that they don't necessarily have a soft place to land, whereas Democrats take over, Republicans take over. You know, we, we have people who have been president, who have been, you know, senators, congressmen, um, governors. They, they, they have experience. Um, we, like, I guess we could eat. Now, the last time that we got a new political party was the American Civil War, so I'm not sure what I'd like to see <laughs> happen if we got a new political party. Um, but, mm. like, the government, like, our order can evolve mm. without anybody shooting. I guess, like, the thing... The thing that I notice about my country about our country because you're an american too the thing i noticed about our country that i really don't think i noticed before i started talking to people around the world with this podcast is we don't there's enough land in america that that you can go reinvent yourself still like you can still go do that. Yeah. We don't have like in the in Ukraine right now. We don't have like this massive yet also paradoxically borderline third world country that's you know aggressively invading us. Or like I'm I'll never forget it. I saw like a you know, I'm a bit of a soccer fan. Yeah. So I saw a map of the United States uh, superimposed on a map of Europe. And I'll never forget, like, oh, wow. When you look at that, that's like if California is where Spain is, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> Ukraine's not that far from Spain. You know, Russia's not that far from Spain, basically. You know, like and, okay, so of California, Spain, where is Russia? What state? Sort of over there by. Uh, well, it's not a state, but over there, kind of by uh, Maine, or more like uh, what's the thing right, right to the east of Maine? Let me remember. I've even been there, Newfoundland, mm-hmm. or yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, like it's it's like it's. You want to think it's far off, but it's really not. And you're just like, (laughs) you know, and you're just like, wow. Actually, I don't even think it was Newfoundland. I think it was. um... Anyway, the punchline is Russia is like really close by our American way of thinking. It's really, really close to Spain. You know, and I don't know. I don't know. But I also think, um, you know, our economy is so large that people can adapt in this country and like that. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's possible to look for tech startups outside of Silicon Valley. Or like it's possible to wake up one morning and decide, hey, I want to do this whole other thing. Okay, this yeah. thing doesn't work. I want to do this thing because this is might work better or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, like, um, I mean, we have problems in this country for sure. For sure. But, you know. And... It's funny, too, because, you know, for, I think this is the fourth episode that I've recorded during this whole Ukraine-Russia thing. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, I haven't talked to a European yet on air, but I wonder how they would think about their country's decision to allow to lean on NATO for their security versus their own military. Or, you know, not saying they don't have a military, but you know what I'm saying. Like, Yeah, France is actually an example of somebody who's really pushed for retaining, like, like independence of their own. Like, they, they produce all their own military stuff because they want to remain independent of America. And that's a good idea. It turns out that's a really good idea, people. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I mean. And who America knows? Might, yeah. Go ahead. Go America ahead. might be a de facto imperial power, but at least we have the uh, virtue of being embarrassed about it. Nathan. Mm-hmm. Thank you for emailing me and uh, wanting to come on my show. Thank you for having me. Oh, anytime. What are your plans now, now that you're out of China? Well, um, I'm working on uh, building a uh, like like freelance business, but also part of that is um, like I'm starting a podcast on modern Chinese history, tracing the course of... Chinese revolutionary movements, and I'm kind of starting from the Opium Wars, where the Qing Dynasty started going down, to then how Chinese revolutions addressed a lot of the problems, and then finally it culminates in the Communist Party of China, and then what we have going on today. Okay, um, but you haven't put any out? Uh, it actually launched last week. Um, so if oh, you go cool. to if you go to chineserevolutions.com, you'll be able to find it. I'm I'm still working on getting it up on podcast apps, um, but it's it's live. I'm having a good day, and I hope you are too. All right, Excellent. thanks everybody. Bye bye. Bye. Just stay on the line with me, please, so we can download this thing. <laughs>